Hey, Harvest, how are you? Good. Really excited to be here with you to look into God's word. You know, this is like my favorite part of the week is when we get to gather together and get to worship the Lord and get to learn from his word. And I hope you have a copy of God's word in front of you. You're going to need that in a couple minutes. We're going to be walking through Acts 15. Um, I don't know if you know this because I have all of my teeth, but I've played a lot of hockey growing up. Um, I, I played all growing up and I was a bit of a punk, honestly. Um, I was one of the only believers on my team and I, I led the team in penalty minutes for a couple of years, which probably wasn't a great uh, thing, but the Lord worked on me, uh, some sanctification. I'm still a bit of a punk uh, when I play, but I took about 20 years off, which honestly sounds a little crazy to say, but um, uh, I just got back into it a couple years ago, and I have a group of guys that I play with uh, in the city a couple times a week, and it's just been a joy to meet these guys and to, to get to play with them, and again, I'm still a little bit of a punk when I play at times, and um, you know, you learn pretty quickly as a hockey player that there actually are, are good penalties and there are dumb penalties. And most sports are kind of like that. There's, there's penalties that you take that you're like, okay, I'm glad we stopped because it stopped a goal or something like that. This week I was actually playing uh, with some of these guys in the city and uh, a buddy of mine, Eric, who is lots better than me, um, had the puck, was going to the net and I, I hooked him with my stick so that he was unable to score. That is a penalty if you're not really familiar with hockey. Uh, but it, it's one of those, he was complaining afterwards, was very upset at me. Uh, I'm joking around with him afterwards. And I'm like, yeah, but that's a good penalty. You didn't score. You see, there, there's uh, decisions that we make in sports and in all of life. Lots of times there's a decision that I, I'm going to make a fight out of this. Now, this is a big deal to me. And it's important enough that, that I'm going to take a penalty here. We're going to look at Acts 15 today, and uh, what we see here is a great dissension, a great argument that happens, some fighting even uh, that occurs, and, and there's something that happens with the believers where they're deciding to, to pick up a, a bit of a fight about some things. And so my hope is that we can learn a lot from their disagreement about, about the things that we need to stand firm on and the things that we're okay to, to let go there's lots in our text today, and what I want to do, uh, because it's a long portion of Scripture, I, I, I want to read the text and walk through it together and tell the story and draw out a little bit of uh, details, and then give two applications, two lessons that we can learn from this account in God's Word. But before we do that, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. Father, we are grateful for your Word and for the ways that you instruct us, us from it. We would pray that you would do that right now that your spirit would be moving, uh, that you would illuminate the pa pages of your scriptures to us so that we may better live in honoring you and better live as, um, as models of Jesus Christ. Would you do it in his name we pray, amen. Amen. Okay, so Acts 15, get a hold of your Bible. Uh, I'm going to have it up here on the screen, but I promise you it's, it's better if you look at your Bible. If you're looking down at the words, the pages that are there, uh, it's going to be a lot better than watching this dope up here. So, um, But I'm going to have it up here if you don't have a copy of God's Word with you. Uh, this is Acts 15, beginning in verse 1. We're going to go all the way to 35 today. Uh, he says in verse one, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, here, here's the argument, no small dissension and debate, 
uh, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others who were, were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So stop there for a moment. Now, if you remember, uh, Paul and Barnabas, they're, they're back in Antioch. This is like their home church where they were sent out on mission. They went out on their missionary journey and our text last week ended with them coming back to the church, having a big potluck and, and encouraging all of the believers there with all that God had done, telling the stories about how, how God opened the doors and, and met them and used them as they preached the gospel to have people turn from their sins to Jesus Christ. This area that was predominantly Gentile, these people who, who didn't know a lot about God at all, and, and they're preaching the gospel and, and Hundreds, thousands of people are, are coming to faith in Jesus Christ through that. And so they're, they're telling all these stories. And as this is happening, as they're celebrating there, we see some Judean teachers. So, so some teachers, Jewish believers from Jerusalem head up. It's about a 300-mile trip for them to get from Judea to uh, Antioch, where they are. And, and they're teaching that, that circumcision is necessary for salvation. Now, now why? Why? Uh, circumcision was a physical sign of the covenant that God had with his people. It was a way that the people of God, the Jewish people, declared, we belong to the Lord. And, and it was also a, a, an element, a, a sign that they were keeping the whole law. And so what, what they're arguing here, these teachers are saying that these new believers, they need to keep the law of Moses. That they need to keep all of the ceremonial law and all of the moral law that we see in the Old Testament. That all of those things need to be kept in order for them to be saved. As you can tell, uh, it's appropriate, I think, that Paul and Barnabas respond very strongly. The words there, it says, no small dissension and debate. It, it, it's a big argument that's happening there. It's something significant. This word for dissension, um, we also see in Acts 19.40, same Greek word, and, and it's referring there to a riot. So this is a, it's a fighting word. It's a big argument that's happening. There's a heated debate that goes on in the church in Antioch, and they decide to, to take the fight up to Jerusalem to get this fight settled. They go up to Jerusalem. The, the text says up. That's because Jerusalem is higher in elevation, even though it's south on a map. But, but they head there. They go there because the apostles are still there. That was the beginning of the church. That's where everything started, and, and that's where so many of the apostles, we'll see them in just a moment, um, where they are. And so they go to, to sort of the experts, these people who've been following the Lord for a long time, and, and so we want to go to them to get their spiritual wisdom. That, that's what's happening here. We've had it in, in our past. We don't have so much like a, a Jerusalem church that's sort of a place, we, we don't have apostles anymore, um, but we have had the privilege of planting 
um, hundreds of churches around the states and worldwide, really. And it's been a blessing to be a part of all of that. And each one of those independent churches are serving the Lord and are being used by God to reach their communities. And we're grateful for all of that. And throughout the years, we've had a couple of times where one of those new churches has come back to here, Harvest, and, and, and asked some of our staff and said, you know, we, we've got this debate that's going on or this disagreement or there's some relational strife between some people on our elder board or with our, with our staff or, or some, something that's happening in our church and we just need a little bit of godly wisdom. Can you guys help us? Have you had this happen before? And that's exactly what's happening here as they go to Jerusalem. They're going for some godly wisdom. We, we've had this big argument. And this is really important because they're talking about the nature of salvation. They're saying that in addition to believing in Jesus, having faith in Christ, that all these people also need to keep all of the law. And if you don't do both of those things, belief in Jesus and keep all of the rules, then you're not saved. That's what they're saying. It's a pretty big deal here at the beginnings of the church. And so they go to Jerusalem in order to figure out uh, what's the best way to do this? What's the godly response? What are we supposed to believe and tell these people who are new followers of Jesus Christ? And along the way to Jerusalem, they make a number of stops to tell people about what God had been doing. Notice that the words there are the very same words that they said in Antioch there. They declared all that God had done with them, the doors that God had opened, how he had moved through all of those things. And this trip would have taken them close to a month. Like as you think about them walking those miles and stopping along the way, all of these churches and these new believers and explaining all that God had done. And so they take a long time to do that. There's great joy as they declare what God had done with them uh, in sharing the gospel. But again, they come to Jerusalem and some of the most conservative Jews uh, there, Jewish Christians, these are believers who came to faith in Christ, they're arguing that these new Gentile converts need to keep all of the law. Since they believe that like in Judaism, if a person who was a Gentile came to faith, the Jewish faith, that's what they would need to do. The males would need to be circumcised and they would need to then keep all of the law or attempt to at least in order to be a part of the faith community. And so here these Jewish believers are are saying, no, that still needs to happen. They still need to do all of these things in order to be a part of it, that they need to believe in Jesus and keep the law. Now, the Jewish law contained many basic uh, moral requirements, worshiping only the Lord, keeping oneself unstained from sexual immorality, not committing murder. Really, all of the Ten Commandments are in there. But the Jewish law also contained a lot of ceremonial requirements about what types of food they could eat and could not eat, about specific types of clothes that they should not wear. I'm pretty sure this is a polyester cotton blend. It's like a no-no for them. Uh, About how sacrifices should be done, about how they were not supposed to touch things that were ceremonially unclean. And the point of the law, especially the ceremonial law, the point of the law is to show that you can't do it. It's to show that you are not right with God on your own. Paul later would say the law is our tutor. It shows us that we need God. 
It declares to us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The point of the law isn't, oh, I keep all of these things and so I'm good with God. The point of the law is, look, you can't do it all. So you need God to provide for you. We fall short of the standard that is set by God. And this fight here, it's really critical that it's around this question. Has Jesus Christ, has his death, his burial, his resurrection, has it done everything that's necessary for your salvation? Or is there something else needed? Are we saved partly through the grace that, that we receive in Jesus Christ and partly through our own good works, our own ability to, to keep this religious performance up? Do we need to keep the law? Maybe it's the ceremonial law of Moses. Maybe it's some other law that we've set up, some set of requirements that, that we've listed that you gotta do these things in order to be saved. Like, like is, it, is it Jesus plus reading your Bible every day? Is it Jesus plus, you know, avoiding certain types of movies? Is it Jesus plus staying away from alcohol? Is it Jesus plus homeschooling your kids? Is it, is it Jesus plus sending your kids to Harvest Christian Academy? Is it, is it Jesus plus something? That's what their argument is here. Is there some set of rules that, that must be kept in order for us to be a Christian? Because Paul and Barnabas, they're, they're arguing that it's not actually good news at all to tell people that if you obey God, you will be blessed. If you obey what God says, then you're in right standing with him. That's not good news because the law tells us you can't obey all of it. You will fall short. The good news isn't that if you keep all these things, you're good with God. The good news is the grace of Jesus is offered freely to all of us. And when you receive it by faith, that is all you need to do. There's nothing else left. There's no and these things in order for me to be saved. But I am forgiven, I'm made right, I'm made clean, I'm put in a right relationship with God only because of the grace of God that's given to me. That's the truth of the gospel. And that's what Paul and Barnabas are arguing for here. Uh, Paul will later preach that in Christ, we've been set free from the prison that is the law. You can't keep it and you don't have to. You are set free. And these teachers from Judea are showing up and they're trying to tell believers to head right back into the jail cell that God just set them free from. And that's what the argument is about. Let's continue in the text, verse six. The apostles and the elders were gathered together. So here they are in Jerusalem. They're gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, another big argument there, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction 
between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved, what? Through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. We believe that we'll be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus. So there's more debate going on here in Jerusalem, discussed for a long time with arguments from both sides. Peter here speaks up and backs up what uh, Paul and Barnabas have been saying, and, and he brings them to remember what happened back in Acts 10. Uh, where Peter has this incredible vision of, of this sheet coming down with all of these animals that he was not supposed to eat. Those were unclean according to the law. And, and God says to him, rise and kill these animals and go eat them. And he's like, no, I can't, I can't because I got to keep the law. I got to keep the law. I, I have to keep myself clean. And God says, don't call what God has made clean, unclean. I've taken care of all of that. And God uses that to point him to Cornelius, who's a centurion, a Gentile. And Cornelius hears the gospel. His whole uh, family and household turns to Jesus Christ. And, and Peter realizes that that vision that God gave him is declaring that, that Jews and Gentiles alike are made right by the grace of God. God makes them clean, not because they keep all of the law, but through the grace that's given in Jesus Christ. And Peter here is reminding them of all of that. He's affirming that the gospel came to the Gentiles and reminding them what happened. And he says here that they're putting a yoke upon them. Now, a yoke, you know, is that thing that goes over the oxen as they're, they're pulling a cart or treading um, through the field. It's this piece that goes over them. It symbolizes work that's to be done. And the Jewish rabbis would often talk about the law as a yoke. They, they would talk about circumcision, and they would talk specifically about all of the law as being a yoke. It's what you have to bear. It's, it's, it's essentially saying, you know, none of us can actually keep the law. That's what Peter is saying here. None of us could keep that yoke. We couldn't do it. Our fathers couldn't do it, and we can't do it. And now you're putting that burden back on them. Interesting that when Jesus came, he said, take my yoke upon you. And not the yoke of the law, not the yoke of trying to perform and try to do all of these religious duties, but take my yoke. I, I did the work for you already. It's been accomplished. It's easy. My burden is light because I did the work for you. And here he's essentially saying none of us can keep the law. We've never been able to. And we take Jesus's yoke upon us. Paul later will talk about the, the law as a yoke of slavery and then say that we should take Jesus's yoke because he has done what we couldn't do. He's kept it perfectly and forgiven us. And so after Peter speaks, James speaks up all the assembly fell silent after Peter speaks. Imagine there, Peter, Peter, standing up, saying these things, and they're all like, okay. Peter spoke. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders, again, God had done through them among the Gentiles. 
After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has held in every city those who proclaim him. For he is read in every Sabbath in the synagogues. So here James stands up and backs up some of the things that uh, Peter had said. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. He was known for his righteous and godly character. You know somebody like that? Who, who when they speak, everyone tends to listen because they, they're known as a righteous and a godly character. He actually had the, uh, the nickname Camel Knees. And that was because uh, his knees were so calloused from the time that he spent on them in prayer. Like that's how he was known to the people around him, that this is a guy who prays. It's like we all have those people who were like, would you pray for me about X? And they're like, yeah, I'll pray for you. And you're like, I don't know, they might, you know. Uh, But we have those people who are like, will you pray for me? And you know that that person will be on their knees this week praying for you, saying your name to our father. That's the type of person that James was. He was a praying person and a a man of godly character and highly respected because of that. That's who James is. So when he speaks up about spiritual matters, people listen. And here his argument has two parts. First, he, he says, you know, the Bible foretold this. In Amos 9, that's the passage that he quotes from, God promised to bring Gentiles into the faith. And, and second, he's saying they don't need to keep the law. We, he says we shouldn't burden them anymore. We, we shouldn't place a yoke upon them. It's already been taken care of. They don't need to keep the law, but, but he does say some interesting things here that we'll look at. He says that they should live in an understanding way towards their Jewish brothers and sisters. But that's the heart of it. These things that he mentions, that abstaining from things that are polluted by idols, animals that have been strangled and meat with the blood, these are all things that Paul later will tell us that that they're freedoms that we have in Jesus Christ. But Paul will also say that there are things that at times we should give up so that we don't cause an undue offense to others. We studied a lot of this in our time in 1 Corinthians where Paul argues these things. Now, sexual immorality is the other one that he mentions. It's a bit of a different category because it is a moral um, aspect as well. But in this context, I think it most likely refers to some of the practices that were actually done in the worship of idols. And so I think James is calling them out of that. But the word here does refer to any sexual activity that's outside of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. 
In many places with Paul and others throughout scripture back up this uh, as a sinful practice, Paul later will say, you have been bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So uh, not to be graphic or anything like that, but, but if you're practicing in any sexual activity that's outside of the marriage relationship between a man and a woman, you should abstain from that immediately. Scripture's pretty clear. Flee from those things. It's a big enough deal for it to be really the only sin that James mentions here. I think it's a big deal because it was very prominent also for the Gentile communities of that day. So flee it. But I want to be clear. James does here say we should not trouble them. We shouldn't place a yoke upon them. It's not a matter of if they are saved, if they do these things. You should abstain. You should flee from some of these things because you are saved, because it honors the Lord, because it is loving to one another. But James's advice here is not to trouble them, that, that they don't have to do all of the law in order to keep uh, a right relationship with the Lord. Let's continue reading verse 22. So after James speak, that, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. So, so they're all sitting around. They're like, I think that sounds good. I, I think that's right. I think that's the way that the Lord is leading. So it seemed good to them and the whole church to choose men from among them to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So they send Paul and Barnabas back with some guys. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas. We'll learn lots more about Silas later in the chapters to come in Acts. Uh, Leading men among the brothers with the following letter. So here's the letter that they wrote to them. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your mind, although we gave them no instructions, it's important here that that they're like, listen, we didn't send those guys. We didn't tell them to come there and to tell you you had to do all of those things. They want to set the record straight. It has seemed good to us having come to one accord. Look at that. Their argument, their dissension has come to the place of agreement. That after there's much debate that's happening there, the believers hear these things, they ponder these things, the Spirit leads them together, and they decide with one accord. All right. We're in this together to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. It's interesting as they're sending Barnabas and Paul back that they take a moment here to affirm them. We love these guys. They're from your church and they have gone out and they've done a lot for the Lord and we love them. So as we send them to you, um, men who have risked their lives for the sake, for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, recognizing the work that, that Paul and Barnabas had done. It's interesting when Paul and Barnabas talk about it, they talk about the way that God opened the door. Uh, but when others are talking about it, they're like, man, but it's so great, the work that you guys did, the sacrifices that you made. They're giving honor and love towards Paul and Barnabas as they send them. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who will themselves tell you the same things by word of mouth. So they send these guys to hand deliver 
this letter, essentially to say like, this is so important to us that we wanna send an emissary with them. We wanna send these, these letters by hand Uh, by these guys so that you can hear from them as well how important this is. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, good to the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, all throughout the book of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit directing. He calls missionaries and sends them out and directs their path along the way and opens doors for the gospel and and here brings church discussions and disagreements to one accord and then sends them out with God's desire. Uh, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to lay on you, look, no greater burden, no more yoke of the law. You don't gotta do all of that. To lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. So this is the letter that they are sent by the hand of these guys in order to bring them great encouragement. And as we finish our text today, you can see that it is great encouragement. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, maybe they have another potluck, I don't know. They gathered the congregation together. They delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They found it so encouraging that we don't, we don't have to keep all of the law. We don't have this yoke upon us anymore. We don't have to do all of these things. We've been set free by Jesus Christ. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained at Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So you see, they get great encouragement as this is delivered. They no longer have to keep that yoke. There's no additional requirements. But what, as we've walked through this whole text, what are some lessons that we can learn from this text? Two things specifically. Some things are worth fighting for. Some things are worth fighting for. Some penalties are worth taking. Anytime that believers get together, anytime that two or more people get together, there there are going to be disagreements. There are going to be arguments and differences of opinion. And some of these things are worth fighting for. Throughout the history of the church, there have been and there will continue to be no small dissensions. There will continue to be debates and disagreements. For, this, for them on this occasion, it was a disagreement about whether the law was needed to be kept in addition to believing in Jesus for a person to be saved. It's a critical thing. And many have occurred in the church throughout the years about the nature of scripture or about the doctrine of the Trinity or, or the nature of man or, or the reality of heaven and hell. And the list will continue to go on one disagreement that is all over the place in many churches in Christianity today is this concept that, that we would call universalism. It's the idea that, that no matter what your faith is in, as long as it's genuine, you're good. It's okay if you don't believe all of the right things that are taught in scripture. 
It's okay if you don't actually have faith in Jesus, just as long as you have faith in something, as long as you're true to whatever you believe. Maybe that's um, uh, another religion. Maybe it's Jesus. Maybe it's just being true to yourself. And, and if, you are, or if you do you, and you're true to, you, to your beliefs and, and what you hold, fa- that, then you're good, as long as you have faith. Because that's not what you have faith in, it's that you have faith. And that's a belief that's, that's pretty rampant in our world today. And, and these things happen all around us and they creep into our churches at times. And it's a fight worth having. That there is one way. Narrow is the path that leads to eternal life. It's only through Jesus Christ. It doesn't actually matter the amount of faith you have. It matters what your faith is in. They've got it completely wrong. It's, it's not the, the depth of the feeling that I have. It's where I'm placing my faith and my trust. And if I place that faith and trust in anything other than Jesus Christ, broad is the road that leads to destruction. And this is a fight that's worth having. It's a fight that we're going to continue to have as these kinds of things come up. Some things are worth fighting for. Jesus would say in Revelation 2... Jesus has these uh, letters to seven different churches that he is speaking to in Revelation. And he says to the church in Thyatira, I know your works, your love and your faith and your service and your patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. Look at all this good stuff you're doing. You have faith and service and endurance and, and you continue to grow in your good works, but... But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I have a problem with you because you're tolerating some of these things. Jesus has an issue with you not making a fight about it. Some things are worth fighting for. False teaching needs to be confronted. It needs to be stopped because the purity of the gospel is critical and it's worth fighting for. There will be people who will come in and will will begin to believe things and even teach things and they may seem like nice people and, and but our solution isn't to welcome those people and let's hear them out. Maybe let's have a symposium to hear all of these things. No, no, no. We're confronting them with the truth of God's word. We're called to have discernment, to have no small dissension or debate with them because some things are worth fighting for. We're called to have discernment in in continual ways that we're growing in discernment, specifically surrounding false teaching. Paul says in Ephesians 4, he says, so that we may, may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes that we need to grow beyond these childish ways of understanding. My uh, son, my oldest is 16, which also sounds crazy to say, but I have a 16-year-old now, and when he was little, um, well, he was actually born on the 4th of July, which is kind of cool. He gets a fun birthday every year, but when he was really little, um, I-, I told him, I said, you know, Judah is his name, and I said, Judah, uh, all of the fireworks in all of America, they're to celebrate your birthday. 
isn't it cool how everybody thinks you're as amazing as we know you are? And, and there's all of these fire, everybody throws a big party because it's your birthday. I mean, when he was three, he might have believed me, but even by the time he got to four, he was like, you're a liar. <laughs> he, he, like, no, nah, it's just me being a goofy dad, you know? But, but there should be an element of that. Like, as we grow, we're, we're not, we're not convinced by some of these things. We're we're not as gullible as we used to be. As a three-year-old, you can understand him believing his dad, telling him a lie. I should confess that. But uh, as a three-year-old, he understands that. But as he's grown, if I were to tell him that now, he's like, whatever, you know, like he knows that because he's moved on past childhood to understand the truth. We are to grow in our discernment of the truth. We should, each one of us, be, be testing everything that we hear or read or see on Instagram stories to make sure that it lines up with God's word. When I am standing here talking or Pastor Jeff is, or you're, you're watching a sermon on YouTube or something like that, you should be thinking, is this really what the Bible says? Is this what God says? Because it doesn't matter if it comes out of my mouth. It only matters if it's what God says. We should bank on that. And so we need to be growing in our discernment in believing all that uh, God is teaching us in these things. Don't, don't miss uh, specifically what they are fighting for in this text because it is critical. Verse 11, I think Peter sums it up really, really well. He says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. They're fighting about what's required to be saved. Is anything more important than the clarity of that? Is anything more important than getting that right? And so they're fighting about it. The purity of the gospel, it is something worth fighting for. And that you're not saved by what you do. This world is full of like, you have to do these things, fill out this card and do these eight things by lunchtime and and you're good. And and all over the place, people believe that if you do something, then you will get good things. But the message of the gospel, the message of the Bible is that there's this list of things and that shows you that you are guilty, that, that you have fallen short of God's standard, that you can't Keep it all. You can't do it on your own. And so you need a savior. And that savior came and his name is Jesus. And he offers you freely his grace. And that is the only thing that will transform you into a new creation and put you in a right relationship with God. And so now we live our lives not out of duty, but out of gratitude for what God has done for us. Because of the immense grace that he's shown me, I was guilty and he showed me his grace and now I want to live in gratitude to the father who's given so much for me because he sent his son. The purity of the gospel is something worth fighting for. Some things are worth fighting for. And second, some things are worth giving up. Some things are worth giving up. These prohibitions, these things that, that uh, James describes, they, they come from passages in the Old Testament that, that actually describe how Gentiles should live as aliens in the land with Jewish people. 
And James wants to be sure that these new Gentiles don't give offense in an undue way to the Gentile or the Jews who are there. All of these, these are non-essential areas. But the Gentiles, they don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to keep the law, but they do need to live in love and understanding for their Jewish brothers and sisters. Uh, Paul would later say, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother and never to put something in the way that's not necessary uh, that would cause a sister or a brother to, to take issue. James's concern here with the Gentiles who may use their freedom from the law, and they do have the freedom, and create all sorts of problems for the Jewish people who grew up in a certain way. That even though they're, they're free from the law, they, they have these deep convictions in their hearts, and, and they are stumbling blocks for them in ways. And we too, we need to keep our sisters and our brothers in Christ in mind uh, as we live out our freedom. These are Christian freedoms and liberties that we have. But I want to give you just a couple of examples. There are tons and tons of applications in the way that we live out our Christian liberties, but just a couple. If you're, um, it's not wrong to drink alcohol in moderation. If you want to go have a glass of wine with dinner tonight, that's Totally fine with me. There's nothing wrong with that in scripture. You have the freedom to do so. But if at that dinner, you're having dinner with a friend who's struggled with alcohol abuse in the past, maybe you should order a Coke. Not a Pepsi, that stuff's nasty. But maybe you should stay away from the glass of wine. I really offended some people. I'm sorry, I'm not practicing what I preach there. But uh, <laughs> because you don't wanna offend your, your sister or your brother who may struggle with that because your friend, your believing friend, sister or brother is more important than that glass of wine or your freedom to drink alcohol. Uh, Halloween is this week, if you weren't aware, and believers have all sorts of different uh, ideas about whether it's appropriate for your kids to dress up like Barbie and go out and get candy or not. It's your freedom to make that decision. And Christians have kind of landed all over the place. I grew up in a church where um, we, uh, we didn't practice Halloween, but um, on November 1st, which is Reformation Day, um, we had a Reformation party. And so all of the kids uh, dressed up and came to the church and went to all the different rooms and got candy. This is Reformation Day. It's not Halloween. It's the day after. Seems ridiculous to me at this point, honestly. But whatever their decision, they, they did not want to do it. That, that's fine. Um, uh, you have the freedom to make that decision for you and for your family. It is not found in God's word. It's, it's not a, it is a matter of Christian liberty. It's not the law. Believers on either side of that decision, however, should be aware and sensitive to their sisters and brothers. So if you want to dress up and go get candy, have, have at it. But don't pressure your brothers or sisters who have a deep conviction that they and their family will not participate 
in that. And if you have a deep conviction that you don't want your family or your kids to, to participate in that, then leave your porch light off this week. It's totally fine. You have the freedom and the right to do that. But also don't act like your sisters and brothers are engaging in some kind of witchcraft just because little Timmy wants to dress like Iron Man and get a Snickers bar. We wanna be sensitive to one another. And there's lots of room, there's lots of gray area in issues like this for us to have this Christian liberties. But we wanna do it in a way that we're sensitive to one another, that we're not gonna harm one another in the process. Uh, another example, um, I, you know, I'm preaching this text, uh, which talks about circumcision and sexual immorality. And um, somebody somewhere told me on Tuesday that this was going to be like a family service weekend. And I was like, wait a minute. So I texted a couple people and they said, no, 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 it was going to be a family service, you know, where we don't have as much uh, Harvest Kids going on and we let all the kids come with us and even the younger ones. And um, so anyway, they, uh, the team somewhere in there decided, you know, because of this passage. I mean, we, we could say like, it's God's word. Everybody should be able to hear this. It's fine. But because there's some kind of sensitive topics, as you can tell, we're not graphic or anything like that, but because there's some sensitive topics, we decided let's not do a family service this weekend. I'm grateful for the team making that decision. I think it actually shows this principle uh, when they made that decision to like, let's just Let's just be sensitive. We don't want to cause an offense to any of our youngest believers. We don't, we don't want to put a stumbling block in, in anyone's way. We want to give up our rights in love for one another because some things are worth fighting for and some things are worth giving up. Your freedom doesn't matter as much as your brother or your sister does. Your decision to, to participate in Halloween or to have a glass of wine or something like that, that's not near as important as your sister or your brother who's sitting in this gathering uh, just a few seats away from you. They're far more important. So we gladly give up our freedom for others because they are more important. A passage that we studied back when we looked at 1 Corinthians, Paul here says, for though I am free... I'm free from it. I don't have to keep the law. Though I'm free from all, I have made myself, I've chosen to do this. I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. It's a decision that Paul is making to lay down Christian liberties for the good of others. That's what James is calling them to do. That's what this letter calls them to do, to love one another in their practice of the gospel. We're going to lay some of our Christian liberties down at times because we are modeling the one who sacrificed everything for us because some, some things are worth laying down for the good of our sisters and brothers. This message that they're proclaiming, that we are proclaiming, this message that we're doing the best that we can to live out is a message that we are all sinners in need of a savior. And that savior is named Jesus Christ, that his grace is given to us, not by any merit of our own, not by keeping the law or a long list of requirements that you have to do or doing the right things or abstaining from the wrong things, but it's only by the grace of God, that we can be forgiven because of Jesus alone. And so we seek to live out that freedom in unity with our sisters and our brothers by upholding the purity of the gospel, but holding fast to love 
for one another because some fights are worth laying down. And some fights, a fight for the gospel, it's a penalty worth taking. It's a fight worth fighting. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your love for us and for the way that you continue to instruct us from your word. We pray that um, you would allow these truths to sink deep in our hearts, that we would um, relish in your grace even more and be uh, more astounded by the grace of God that's found us in Jesus Christ and the way that you've reached out, not by any merit of our own, uh, but because of your incredible love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and have set us right. And we would pray that you would um, set us into this community in a way that we would love one another, that we would live our lives and exercise even our freedoms in ways that are honoring and loving to one another, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.